This is a Triple J podcast. Carnivore diets, collagen, oat milk. We get into some of the buzziest topics with dietitian Professor Claire Collins in this week's science episode. Hi, my name's Lucy Smith. This is Science with Dr. Carl. Let's jump in. Now, Dr. Carl, you and I are very lucky this week to be joined by our mate and friend of the show, Professor Claire Collins, for the first time in 2024. Claire, welcome back. Yeah, thanks. The year's really up and racing already. I know. we are. Oh, yeah, gosh, we're already in February. And you have already kind of been back to it in a big way. What have you been working on to kickstart the year? Yeah, well, the really exciting thing is we're looking at results from a study we finished on metabolites that show up in your urine and your blood whether you eat healthy or unhealthy. And we've narrowed in on a unique bunch of metabolites and we're on our way to working out, is there a way we're going to be able to predict whether you respond to healthy eating or not? What are metabolites? So base level. Most people have heard about um, vitamins and minerals. Well, there's a whole bunch of bioactive chemicals that are in food that affect your immune function, they affect your brain, they affect your risk of things like heart disease. And we're, we're muscling in on how to identify the most potent of those. And we're also starting to look at genetics of those. So whether, you know, you might have a high requirement for those and somebody else has a low requirement. Mm. And whether if you eat them, you need more than your next door neighbour or you need less. So it's a whole new frontier of precision and personalised nutrition, and I'm really excited to say that we're right there on the edge of it. So everything we discover is new and exciting. So Wow. So you've got the study and you're just kind of sifting through it at this point? We f- finished the first study where we brought people in the lab and fed them healthy food or unhealthy food two weeks each, and then we swapped them over so we can compare how their own bodies respond differently. Because there are these huge uh, differences in people uh, on how you uh, you respond to things. Mm -hmm. So in my case, if I go to a restaurant and have a salty meal, which normally they have lots of salt thrown in, I'll find myself in the situation of drinking water and drinking and drinking, no desire to urinate. And the way Claire explained it, my body's really good at hanging on to sodium. And so I'm just going to hang on to the water to dilute it and she suggested I measure my blood pressure the next time I go and have a really salty meal to see what happens. But as an example of individual differences, 90% of people can take um, codeine and get a benefit because they have the enzyme to turn it into morphine. But 10% of people, they take codeine, they get nothing and there are all of these differences in people that... Claire's work is trying to tease out so that further down the line we'll say, if you've got blood pressure, this medication will be better for you than that. And one third of people around the world have been diagnosed with it. And then the, almost that much. And then the other thing is your diet, you know, you should have more vegetables. So we're getting the personalised medicine coming through. Wow. Yeah, it really is the way forward. So like watch this space. And I think what's exciting is that, you know, in the not too distant future, these results will be able to apply. It'll make a difference. You'll go and get your blood test and say, oh, that's your cholesterol. But did you know that you're a responder? So you come to the top of the queue and we're going we're gonna to get you that advice because you're going to respond straight away. Whereas equally I might say, you know, the bad news is you're not a responder to diet. So it's really important that you get onto the medications to and keep your arteries nice and clean and healthy. Wow. 
That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Okay, yeah, well, amazing. watch this space. And, of course, you can always check out what Claire is up to via the conversation. Plenty of articles there. And we're going to get into some questions now. Should we do it? Let's go. Let's do it. We've got Elijah from Albury who's going to kick us off. Elijah, what's your question? Hey, guys. How are you going? Good. Great. I've just got a quick question about the carnivore diet. Uh, me and my friends, the Rat Pack, are thinking of starting to do it and just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Don't do it. That's, that's, my, that's my thoughts. The main reason is like your bowels aren't going to be very happy and that's not going to make you happy because if you only eat meat, then you miss out on dietary fibre. And dietary fibre, it's not just that it fills you up and it's in all the yummy foods like all the vegetables and fruit. When the fibres get to your colon, all the organisms that live there they become happy when they see fibre. Mm. They ferment it away. They produce chemicals that cross into your blood and affect your immune function. Some of them even affect your brain and your level of happiness. They affect how much serotonin you make in your brain. So if you only go carnivore, you might go, yeah, meat, but it's not really good for your health. And the other side effect to be aware of, no fibre means you'll, you'll get constipated, but the other side effect is, you will then have a massively high intake of sulfur-containing amino acids. And some of those will end up in your colon and some of the bugs in your colon are going to be really happy because they'll be able to make lots of hydrogen sulfide. And do you know what happens to hydrogen sulfide when you produce a lot of gas with hydrogen sulfide? You will clear the room when you do a fart because that's called rotten egg gas and for the reason it that your farts will smell like rotten egg gas. Wow. So you might want to warn all your friends you're about to start yeah. on the carnivore diet. Elijah and the Rat Pack are going to be stinking it up. Yeah, we'll be stinking up the footy club, that's for sure. Yeah. And, I reckon. And there's another factor. A true carnivore has a really short gut and so they can eat rotting meat and then get the nutrition out of it and then get out the other end and not get food poisoning. You and I do not have a short gut. We don't have a two-metre gut. We have a 10-metre gut. We have evolved over several hundred thousand years to be able to eat meat and the vegetables and, in fact, they're essential. What is it about the carnivore diet that draws people to it? What's the discourse around it? I think it's that it's a lot of meat. And so if you're a meat lover, that sounds really really amazing. But one of the interesting things, not not just for the carnivore diet, but any diet where you restrict the variety of foods you eat, after a little while you start to get bored and you don't just, you know, eat two kilos of steak a day. And what happens then is you lose weight because you just can't face another meaty meal. Mm. And, you know, there's been diets like this for, um, you know, cabbage soup or, you know, the apple Israeli army diet, which is just two days of only apples. So... There's something about we eat more when we have more variety. So that is that is another way that the carnivore carnivore diet works. And the other thing, any diet, when once you start losing weight, it inhibits your appetite. So if you're trying to lose weight as well and you drop weight, then it starts to reinforce itself. Mm. We've got Zach in Maitland here. Dr. Zach, what's your question? Hey, guys. Um, my question, if a different sperm won the race, would the baby look different? Ah, I get my advice here from a movie called About Time where um, Bill Nye was able to go into a room and concentrate and then go back in time. Do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah. What was it called, About Time? I think so. Yeah, and so the trouble was you can't go too far back in time because you then alter things and somebody goes back in time and they do so so before two people meet and their child is different. Mm. So you've got all of these hundreds of 
well, I think it's 60 million sperm typically. And yes, if a different sperm comes up, you get a different looking person. Okay. Do you agree with that, Claire? Yeah, uh, that, yeah. Different sperm, I don't want to go person. back in time. No, there's too much to do. <laughs> too much advantage? to do. That, but definitely, what's that movie? Is it called About Time? Yeah, it's About Time. Zach, have you seen that movie? Oh, I haven't. Okay, no. there will be a bit where he goes around to visit them, and the kids are different, and, and and then suddenly you'll get the answer to your question, and really enjoy the movie as well. We've got Juliet from Nudwooding. Now, Juliet, what's your question? Something to do with your son and food intolerances. That's right. Hi. Um, my son suffered from terrible food intolerances from about age 6 to 13. And when he hit a certain part of his puberty, the teenage hormones kicked in and it pretty much vanished overnight. Um, so my question is, what role do those teenage hormones play in the gut? And why don't we treat these kids with hormones? Um it did change at around a certain time in their life and the hormones are coming out, but there are so many other things going on. Your immune system, intolerance system is not something that is fixed. It is dynamic. It is continually changing. And it's not just simply a case of saying, well, it's a bit of testosterone, a bit of estrogen, that's all you need to do. It's more complicated. Yeah. It's really interesting about how some things change at life stage. So in pregnancy for women with their immune system, which is the same system you're talking about, sometimes it can improve, but in general, women's immune systems is suppressed, which is why they're more susceptible to things like the flu. But for some women with a condition called rheumatoid arthritis, that switch in immune function, it sometimes improves in pregnancy. So there's a lot we don't know about, about you know, these hormonal changes. And what, with regard to women being pregnant... Early on, uh, we take a pap smear or cervical smear because in some cases, the immune system is severely depressed so the baby can survive. And if the woman happens to have a tiny cervical cancer growing, in a very small percentage of cases, it can grow so fast that it's a race of whether she will live long enough to have the baby. So that's why it's important to have that test of the cervix for any cancers before you enter the you know, the pregnancy thing or immediately as soon as you know. So it's really right. variable again. Okay. Thanks, Juliet. Mm. Thank you. And we've got Peter from Greensboro on the line. Peter, you got a question about collagen. What's going on? I sure do. Um, good morning, Dr. Carl, Professor Claire. Um, collagen is uh, very popular at the moment and just looking online, there's a lot of conflicting information about um, whether it actually works, whether it's absorbed in the body. Um, there's different types of collagen, I believe, maybe up to 28. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could shed any light perhaps on the myth. Um, are tablets better than uh, powders, uh, injectables the best, um, any, anything at all that you've got? Yeah, I've actually written an article on this for the conversation, if you want to Google that. And, mm-hmm. and it, the key thing about collagen is it's promoted by a lot of celebrities. I dived in and looked at the quality of all the research and most of the trials are actually sponsored by um, companies who are making the products. Wow. So, and they're mostly low quality. There did, did across the study seem to be some evidence for improvement in like water retention and elasticity, but it's not consistent across those studies. So my conclusion was that better value for the 
to the 37% of Australians who are spending about 20 bucks a month on cosmetics, including things like collagen supplements, would be to actually ensure you have adequate protein in your diet. So one of the things with the digestion of collagen, when you eat collagen, you can buy it cheaply. Gelatin is, is also collagen is that your body digests it first and then makes collagen in your body. So there's no evidence that eating collagen makes your body make more collagen. And I personally, I would look really carefully where the collagen has come from because it can be made from animal hide, it can be made from fish scales, it can be made from hooves. So it tends to be made from some of the components of, an, of animal protein, animals that aren't used, that can't be like sold for meat. So... Check where your collagen's coming from in your supplements and, you know, take a look at all of the other things you're eating. Now, Claire, can I run this past you? Collagen is the uh, one most common protein in the body, about 30% of all the protein in your body. It's made up of about a 1,000 amino acids. So you buy it, you put it in your mouth, it goes into your gut. But the biggest lump of amino acids that can cross your gut wall is maybe one or two amino acids. So what they're asking us to believe is that you take in this chemical that's got a thousand amino acids, it then gets broken down into maybe 500 pairs, which then magically know they've got to go to the wrinkle under your left eye and then reassemble themselves over there. Yeah, but you know, I think we should give the collagen molecule a little bit of love though because I remember when I studied biochemistry, we were asking our mid-semester and end of semester to describe the molecular structure, so I've never forgotten it. <laughs> and it's actually a triple helix. Now, DNA, every cell in your body, your DNA, your genetic code is only a double helix. So collagen is a triple helix. Makes sense because collagen is what gets filled up in scars and wounds, your earlobes, your nose. Got to be stretchy but strong. So what joins the triple helix is these things called a disulfide bridge, leveraging off those sulfur-containing amino acids in each strand. But you know what catalyzes? You know what the cable tie of those collagen strands? Vitamin C. Ah. So that's how they figured out that vitamin C was needed by all those sailors back in the day because when you're short of vitamin C and you get scurvy, the cable ties come undone from the collagen, so the wounds break down, you get in, infected. And that's what I mean about it isn't just eating collagen, it's having the protein there, but then also having vegetables and fruits rich in vitamin C mm. to keep your collagen, your skin, the collagen in your skin, your nose and your ears, all stuck to your body, nice and healthy looking. It's all connected. Okay, thanks, Peter. We've got Jessica from Goolway here now. Jessica, you've been, you have a kind of a regular craving. What is it? I, about probably twice a month, I just get this massive hankering for Vegemite and I'll eat it for a couple of days, like every meal, and then I completely go off of it. And I'm wondering if I'm like seeking it for a particular vitamin, mineral. That's, that's possible. You know what? I want to go with you because I want to disclose that I'm a Vegemite lover as well. And so much so that my colleagues and I, we actually did research on Vegemite and how much salt does it contribute? Because I do want to feel guilty if I'm really, you know, eating too much salt by eating Vegemite. Well, the good news is, first of all, there is a low sodium Vegemite that you can buy. But we found that, yes, while it did contribute to sodium intakes for high consumers of Vegemite, that it importantly contributed to B vitamin intakes. So riboflavin, niacin, folate. And if you buy the salt reduced, it also has vitamin B12, which is very important for vegans. And so if you're craving it, 
I want to think that maybe you do need a little boost to your B vitamin in, intake, but just make sure you don't use any extra salt on that day. And as a cultural reference, in the second last episode of The Simpsons, do you know they're still going? Yeah. Uh, Lisa Simpson solves a mystery with Vegemite. How so? Oh, I've been warned about spoilers. Oh, yeah, no spoilers. Okay. That's true. There you are. Second <laughs> last episode of The Simpsons. Okay, getting a little tip off there. We've got Aaron from Terry Hills. Now, Aaron, what's your question? This is something that I think about regularly. <laughs> okay, this is a bit of a basic one. Morning, doctors. Um, morning. An ex and I had, had a bit of a dispute that if you will go down to the uh, local supermarket and get price gouged and buy a cooked chook, um, is it okay, once you take it home, you've taken a bit off, is it okay to put it straight in the fridge when it's hot or is it best to let it cool down first and put it straight in the fridge? I would put it straight, I would put it straight in the, the fridge. So and the reason for that is uh, take it out of the bag so the heat can dissipate. So the danger zone is between 4 degrees and 70 degrees. 4 degrees is your fridge, 70 degrees is steam rising. So if there's no steam rising from your chook, chances are it's entered the danger zone. So you want to cool it down as fast as as you can. Oh. Ah. Is that going to have any effect, though, on the food that's already in the fridge? No, no, not li- likely. M- modern fridges are, are trying to um, get that temperature back down straight away. So it possibly would if your fridge was jammed, like you know how on Christmas Day mm. you can hardly shut it. So if your fridge isn't overstuffed, then it won't have – you could get it to dissipate more, but if you've got a set of kitchen scissors and, and cut it down the breastbone so that it opened up and the inside cooled as well, or you could get out your sharp knife, remove all the breast meat and put that on a plate and put it in the fridge. Oh, and okay. uh, here's a handy hint. Uh, this happened to us. If you just put the thing straight into the fridge, you'll about 10 minutes later hear a crack as the glass plate broke. So what you do is you put it on a thermal insulator, like a coaster. So you can put the hot it's thing in the stove. And, and if you read Choice Magazine, you will bump up the temperature a little bit, but you know, not that much in, when you've got lots of air, but have a, a coaster to act as a thermal insulator so the hot uh, bit of the serving implement or the tray is not touching the cold glass. Mm-hmm. There's there this thing called the hazard control points. So when food gets transported, you know, like from the factory and then it's got to get into the supermarket, they have to fill in forms to say how long it's been in the danger zone because it can't be more than two hours. If it goes over two hours, then you really are increasing the riskiness of like nasty bugs growing. So the sooner you get it home into your fridge, the less you're going to have to worry about potentially being in the danger zone where bugs can grow. So what would they do if they did, you know, maybe there was really bad traffic or something happened on the road? Like, what Well, if they it's do in a refrigerated they... truck, that's okay. okay. Okay, It's once it gets loaded on the dock and then until it gets into the cool room and oh. then from the cool room into the refrigerator shelf. So that's it, just all hands on deck. Yeah, these are all the invisible things that happen in our food supply that, yeah, that we don't know about. That we don't know. And with refrigerator trucks, here's something rather chilling. But after COVID hit New York, um, there were refrigerator trucks full of dead bodies on Coney Island for two years. Wait, because sorry, they had so many dead bo- they, New York had so many people die from COVID that they couldn't process them all and some they just buried and then they had to just in mass graves and had to pull them out again to work out who they were. If you were lucky, you got, when you were dead, you got put into a refrigerator truck and the refrigerator trucks were there on Coney Island for two years as they went through the backlog of bodies. Oh, my God. So you got 8 million people there in New York and it just hit really hard. That was in the early days before we did the lockdowns and stuff. So a refrigerator truck will work. 
We've got Jordan here from Sea Lake. Jordan, what is your question? You've got a question about fasting. Oi, oi, doctors. First time, long time. Welcome. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, I've got a question about fasting. If you only eat for four to six hours a day, is that actually more beneficial than eating all day? And then as well, if you don't eat for a 24-hour period, does that actually reset all the enzymes and everything in your stomach? Fasting is such a, a mixed bag of types of approaches. So, and you've just described a whole bunch of them. So there's intermittent fasting where you try and eat just a small amount, less than 500 calories, 2,000 kilojoules in a day. There's time-restricted feeding where you only eat in maybe a six-hour window and fast for 16 hours a day. And then and then there's um, the two-five. You do two days of uh, restricted and then five days of normal eating. But what seems to be the thing about the fasting um, approaches is that they do seem to help help with appetite regulation. So my main advice would be not doing all of them on the one day. So it, from what you described, it sounded like you're going to do a, a fast and a time restricted all on the one day. The evidence, do they work in helping you lose weight? It kind of shows that like name your poison, which every every type of fasting diet or just regular reducing your total energy intake, after one to two years, they all lead to about the same results. So it's take the approach that works for you. Always go and get a medical checkup, find out if, what your blood pressure is, what your cholesterol is, all those invisible risk factors. And, uh, and you know, yeah, and I've written lots about fasting diets on the conversation, actually, if you want a bit more information there. And Christy Varity was one of the early people. I've done a podcast with her on shirtloads of science um, and read her book as well, V-A-R-A-D-Y, Christy, K-R-I-S-T-Y. I think the book is called Fasting or something like that. We've got Will in Ballarat here. Will, what's your question? Uh, g'day. I was just wondering, does apple cider vinegar, like what benefits it has for your indigestion um, Gut health. Yeah, apple cider vinegar is one of those things that keeps popping up again and again. And there's some short-term studies that suggest that it helps with appetite regulation and so lead to weight loss. But when you look at the longer-term results, there didn't seem to be any particular benefits. I think some of the most interesting research around apple cider vinegar relates to glycemic index. So glycemic index of foods is when you eat them, how quickly does that raise your blood sugar? And particularly if you have type 2 diabetes, a high rise and a sustained rise in your blood sugar is not good for your, not good for your health. So when they put apple cider vinegar on food, it actually lowers the glycemic index food, the glycemic index, so blood sugars didn't go up as high. So I think those sorts of studies give some indication as to why like the Mediterranean diet might be particularly good for your health because typically the salad will have vinegar of some type. So there's nothing extra special about apple cider vinegar, just that a lot of studies have done that. But the other thing about apple cider vinegar is they talk about this unique combination of the protein strands and the particular bugs that grow during the fermentation and they call that like the mother of the vinegar that's what a lot of these health properties are attributed to. So I think it's something that, you know, if you want to try it, see, see if it works for you. But, you know, if you're not into using a lot of vinegar, then you can get those same benefits in other ways. And is apple cider vinegar relatively cheap? Yeah, yeah, it's a, a relatively cheap thing. Basically, you take apples, add a bit of sugar, 
and uh, they'll start fermenting away. You'll see it happening, bubbling on, you know, on your kitchen bench. But there was a recent caution about um, DIY fermenting at home and the risk of like growing the wrong bugs and things. So you might want to go and find a YouTube channel where somebody takes you through, you know, first of all, sterilize the jars that you're going to do your fermentation in. And that's what I mean about making sure you don't introduce the wrong types of bugs into the mix. Could that be the same thing for anyone? Say anyone making like a sourdough starter or something like that? Um, Well, with bread, you then end up cooking it. Oh, okay, of course. Yeah, so you then like kill any of those bugs. Yeah. So it's more of an issue around um, anything that you're fermenting yourself. So I'd encourage people to do all of their homework, make sure they've followed somebody who's hygiene conscious or go and buy a proprietary starter kit and Again, follow the instructions. Usually they start with how to clean and sterilise the jars. Yeah, yeah, straight off the bat. We've got Matt in Nam here. Matt, you've got a question about dairy allergies. Yeah, good morning, doctors and professor. Um, my wife has quite a severe uh, intolerance. I don't think it's quite an allergy to dairy. Now, it's not just lactose, it's also dairy. But what I'm wanting to know is if I actually product what are the chances of that dairy being passed on to my wife either uh, via orally saliva or even through uh, semen? Is that something that's a possibility that she can then react to that? Matt, so yeah, you cut out there for a minute, but you just said that if you consumed that product, yeah. how could that potentially be passed on? Yeah, so the risk is actually yeah. oral. So if she has an anaphylactic reaction and you've just had a milkshake, chances are, and then you go and give a big kiss, chances are you could cause an anaphylactic reaction. There have been cases of that for peanut allergy amongst teenagers, not realising that, you know, your partner um, loves peanut butter and you have peanut anaphylaxis. So just not eating it in their presence isn't enough. You would actually have to go and clean your teeth. Um, I don't know about the same in one, but I cannot imagine that dairy protein is actually reappearing in seminal fluid. So I think you're safe there, but definitely being passed orally is a risk. Wow. we got James in Cessnock here. James, what's your question? Yes, hello. Uh, my question is uh, why is it when you have um, warm carbonated water that the, the gas itself is a lot hotter in your mouth than what the water is? Wow, there's a receptor in your mouth called, I'm just going to look it up here, TRVP. And on one hand, it picks up heat. So if you have the energy of heat in hot tea on your tongue, it fires. And if you have the chilli ingredient, capsaicin, if you have that, it will also fire. But it's not just in your tongue, it's through your whole body. I'm, I'm kind of running out of ideas here, yeah, Professor well, Claire. Help me, rescue me. I think it has to be stimulating those heat receptors, like Dr. Carl was just telling you about. But the other interesting thing, I mean, I've heard of I've heard it of it tasting like sour because there's cross reactivity between the carbonized bubbles and stimulating your sour receptors. But so that would make sense that it could also be stimulating your heat receptors as well. Because it always surprises me every single time it happens, like when I take a sip of carbonated water, which is not quite cold. Like I've put it in the fridge, but I take it out like half an hour later. It hasn't really had time to get cold. But it, it always sort of shocks me because the, the water itself is, is a little bit cool, but then the, the, the gas itself is just really hot 
and that, that's a really, really strange sensation. It's, it's got to be this crossover reactivity. But the other thing we know is that people do have different amounts of like taste buds and receptors in, in their mouth. So this is clearly something that you have more of in that particular location. So, you know, you're going to be always the one saying, can you just get me some ice? There's something wrong here. Mm-hmm. It tastes hot. Uh, look, I did go looking on Google Scholar saying CO2 bubbles feel hot. And there's several thousand references, and we don't have the time, but James, go to Google Scholar if you've got a few hours, and we'll try and do it ourselves if we have the time. That might be a good one. We'll we'll do some research on that and get back to you. Yeah, get back to you. We've got Cameron in Sunbury here. Cameron, what do you want to know? So, a bit of a general question. Um, So, I was putting my son to sleep the other night, and I've realised that when I'm sitting there laying, looking at my chest going up and down that sometimes my chest or my tummy will alternate going up and down um is this sort of like a normal thing or yeah i just want to know if i'm sort of normal or a bit out there (laughs) Ah, not only are you normal you have reached an enlightened state of enlightenment because you are now doing diaphragm breathing like they try to get you to do in yoga so just if you ask any kid yeah under the age of 10 or something how do you breathe they go with my lungs and you say do it for me and they'll sort of lift up their shoulders and expand their rib cage and they think that you get most of the air in there of your lungs by expanding your rib cage and you do get some but most of it 80% comes from the diaphragm muscle it's a curved muscle It runs from the front of your ribs to the back of your ribs, higher at the front, lower at the back, and curved. And when you contract your diaphragm muscle, it goes straight, and directly above it are the lungs, so the lungs get pulled down. And so your rib cage doesn't change at all. So when you're lo- so this is the so-called yogic diaphragmatic breathing, and that's about eighty percent of your breathing. So by putting your son to sleep, you have achieved enlightenment. Wow, okay, so I'm a bit of a yoga expert too. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, we'll send you the cardboard certificate in the mail. It also yeah. means, Cameron, that you could be pretty good at playing wind instruments because when I played ah. the flute, you have to breathe with your diaphragm and you'd do an exercise where you'd put your hand on your tummy and then the further it went out, the more air supply you had. And then when you tense those muscles, it means the tone in your instrument is a lot better. It's less shallow because wow. if you breathe... Wow. You breathe with your lungs, you don't have enough to take you through however many bars you need to do, so you need to breathe with the diaphragm, hold on to it, and then that'll, yeah, so maybe you should play the flute or the saxophone, Cameron. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'll give it a go. And also, that's thought to be the mechanism behind getting winded. Mm. So you're running along, I remember I was about seven years old, and my dog ran in front of me, and I fell flat on the ground, and I just could not breathe for about 20 or 30 seconds, I thought I was going to die. And what happens is that electrical signals get sent from them falling down. They get sent through the diaphragm and the diaphragm goes into a spasm and then you just wait for it and it comes back. You don't die from getting winded. But it really scared the heck out of me. Yeah. Now, Claire, I've been seeing in my feed, it's popped up recently, the wellness girlies are telling me that I shouldn't be drinking oat milk in my coffee. What's the deal? Oh, do you really like oat milk, do you, Lucy? Yeah, I do. Uh, (laughs) Well, you go for it then because the amount of oat milk, honestly, that you'd have in coffee wouldn't be that much. But if you think about rolled oats cooked with water, they don't taste very sweet, do they? Mm. Whereas if you sip your oat milk, it probably does taste sweet. So turn around 
the ingredient label of the carton and see where that sweetness is coming from. It might be added like white table sugar. It'll say sucrose. Um, If we were in America, it'd say high fructose corn syrup solids. That's their main sweetener. There might be some maltose, which is a less sweet type of carbohydrate, maybe to give it more of a mouthfeel of creaminess. But Mm -hmm. to get it to be palatable enough, it's likely to have a lot of added sugars. Okay, so as long as you're not drinking it by the carton full and... Yeah, you're having one coffee a day on oat milk. It's neither here nor there, you know. It's not like you'll be, you know, banished from the kingdom, so to speak, <laughs> because you're drinking oat milk. But, you know, if you really love it, then then go for it. But it doesn't, it's not especially special either. Mm, it's so interesting because I see these conversations happening and even saying that potentially almond milk is better, but environmentally... You use or they use so much water to make almond milk. Like yeah, that's oat milk right. environmentally is kind of the best option as far as production. Yeah, or even, you know, like regular milk gets squirted out of cows, you know, and that, that's relatively low production, especially now we have all these happy farms where the cows go and milk themselves compared to all of the processing and packaging to get from an almond, which tastes really nice, into a, a milky tasting product. So, mm. So I think... You know, if you want to think big picture about the environment, a little bit of old-fashioned milk can be just as good, well, actually better. And what were you saying to me was, which I might have got wrong, that you've got to make sure you get enough calcium atoms, enough calcium atoms in your body by your early 20s. And and that's the maximum you can ever have. And all you can do is either stay at that level or go down. Can you just Yeah, that's right. So your skeleton is the bone bank, essentially. It's like a giant vault. You can make deposits into your you know, your peak bone mass up until your mid-20s. So it's really, really great. But once you reach that peak bone bone mass, no more deposits can be made and you start just withdrawing over your lifetime. So you really have to your, your mid-20s to do that. So with your oat milk, line it up next time you go to the supermarket to all the other plant milks and a carton of regular cow's milk and see which one's got the most calcium and mm. and maybe experiment to find the one that you like the taste of. You're willing to drink it regularly and you're getting enough calcium. Because once you've hit the mid-20s, that's it. You can't add more. We've got Michael in the Southern Highlands. Michael, Michael. you've got a question about synthetic meat. Yeah, I do. Hi, doctors. I've uh, I've been hearing a bit about uh, that there's some companies in the US trying to, you know, make a plant-based meat essentially by using a biopsy of an animal, whether it's a chicken or a cow or whatever, and reproducing that in a vat using, you know, other other materials. Uh, I was just curious if that was to be, you know, something that is able to be done, would there be some sort of animal that would be better to eat than cows or chickens and potentially should we be eating gorillas or Yeah, so this is a challenge, isn't it, of how we're going to feed the world and, you know, it's not really fair to the rest of the world that we go, no, you're not allowed to eat as much meat as what we do. And so I I think people recognising the environment and sustainability has fueled the increase in plant-based meats. But there's two different categories of these broadly called fake meats. So there is the ones that are made from plant products. So it's typically pea or soy or even wheat protein. And they're with a lot of additives turned into a meat replacement product. But this category you're, you're talking about, this is a cell culture. So you're exactly right. They get cells from the muscles of some type of animal and then grow enough of those cells to harvest them 
and turn them into a meat product. I think this is a category that we're going to see really increased. There are Australian producers of that type of meat as well. So when you go to the supermarket, have a look to see whether is this is it being sold as a cellular type of meat product or is it a plant-based meat product. In the conversation, there has been a review of all the fate meats and they're not all equal, a bit like the milks. So you need to look at the label and look for the ones that are the lowest in salt, the lowest in the saturated fats, and just see that you're happy to be consuming all the ingredients listed on the label. I'd be interested to know from a vegan if if it is made with cells, if it's a cell production, if it would still be considered vegan then because they're still taking the cells from an animal? Well, it won't be because they'll be animal cells. So then if you're a vegan, you really got to look closely. Is this a plant-based Mm. Yeah, we've got Jordan in Melbourne here. Jordan, what's your question? Jordan. Hi, doctors. Thank you so much for your time. Just got a quick one. Um, what do you think is worse for you, having a one big night a week on the beers or every night, you know, having one or two with dinner? I'm going to read you the Australian Alcohol <laughs> Consumption <laughs> Guidelines. Oh, the Riot Act. Here we yeah, go. Yeah, here's the Riot Act. No more than 10 standard drinks per week and no more than four standard drinks on any one. So it's the one a night is the short answer. But the reason why they say that is we used to have all these different guidelines about alcohol, from one from the Cancer Council, one from the Road and Traffic Authority, one from the Heart Foundation. They all got together and they agreed on what I just read you. And the reason why it's four on one occasion is to reduce the risk of alcohol-related harm. You know, so you don't get run over because you've walked in front of a car. You don't run someone over. You don't say the wrong thing and get beaten up, you don't beat someone up. But if you're a beer drinker, you are so, so lucky because the low and reduced alcohol beers that taste really amazing Mm. every week, new amazing ones. So you can drink as much as you like if you're going for those zero and extremely low alcohol beers and just keep um, persevering till you find one that you really like. Good news is the work's underway in wine research. Some of that's being done at the University of Newcastle and the University of Adelaide. But it's a mo- lot more complex to get retain the flavour of wine and make it zero alcohol. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Science with Dr Carl and thank you again to Professor Claire Collins from the University of Newcastle for coming through. If you want to keep up to date with our guest episodes, if you want to see when a new one drops or revisit one of your faves, take a scroll through the podcast feed. Make sure you are subscribed and a part of the Science with Dr. Carl fam. My name's Lucy Smith. This episode was produced by Sarah Harvey and we'll catch you next week. Bye. Dave Marchese here from the Triple J Hack team. Hey, if you love Dr. Carl's podcast like I do, you might enjoy the Hack podcast as well. Each day we bring you the news that matters to you, from the latest science on climate change to what's happening in politics and news around the world. The Hack Podcast. It's your daily fix of the news you need to know. Get it wherever you're listening now.